As we've been walking through the book of Daniel together these past months and and weeks, we have seen, church, I hope you realize time and time again, that it is God who reigns both in the heavens and on the earth. This revelation that I've just mentioned is the revelation of God's sovereignty. And we have seen his sovereignty in the book of Daniel in a number of ways. We've seen it in the raising up and casting down of the Babylonian Empire. We have seen it in chapter 4 in the humbling of the King Nebuchadnezzar. We have seen God's sovereignty in the miracle rescues of the friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and also the rescue of Daniel from the lion's den. We've seen God's sovereignty in the visions and dreams of Daniel and of the King Nebuchadnezzar. And we've seen the supremacy of God's kingdom over all the kingdoms of men. Perhaps most remarkably, and this is what we're going to focus on today, we have seen God's sovereignty revealed in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So how does the fulfillment of biblical prophecy speak to us about God's sovereignty? It shows us this. It tells us whenever biblical prophecy is fulfilled, it shows us that the prophet Isaiah was absolutely correct when he wrote in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. He said, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all. All my purpose. Hallelujah. In Bible prophecy, what's happening is God is accurately predicting future events through his prophets. He's predicting things that no man could know. So how does God know the future? The Bible says, or Isaiah says in that chapter, he knows the future because he has decreed the future. God's knowledge of the future is completely, inextricably connected to his sovereign decree. Only a sovereign God can reveal mysteries about the future and have them fulfilled. Only a God who knows that his will is going to come to pass can infallibly reveal secrets to mankind through prophecy. We read Nebuchadnezzar, the king, in Daniel chapter 4, say this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, according to his will, among the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? There's a type of theology today that says that God doesn't actually know the future. That he's left it completely open to the free will choices of humans. In fact, I remember a while back being in a meeting and somebody stood up to preach and they said, I've got good news for you. God can't do anything without your permission. And everybody whooped and hollered and praised and I thought, what a judgment upon the church of Jesus Christ 
that this heresy is being celebrated today. If God needs your permission to do anything, guess what? None of you would be saved. Nothing would have been created. Think about it. This kind of theology that says God doesn't know is known as open theism. But here's the deal. If God doesn't know the future, he can't decree things to happen because he doesn't want to impinge on free will, then prophecy, you understand, could never be fulfilled. There could be no such thing as a prophecy if God doesn't know the future, if God cannot decree anything. Since the God of open theism doesn't really know what's going to happen, he doesn't know what people will decide to do, he can't give prophecy to any prophets because he'd have to impinge on free will choices. I want you to see, church, both that God is absolutely sovereign, that he does all that he wants, both in the heavens and the earth, but also that people are responsible. And you'll see this preached in this passage today. We will see how God has created us with a free will like no other creature on earth. We can choose to do whatever is in our heart to do, can't we? We are responsible beings. We make real choices. But at the same time, God has a sovereign decree which is accomplished. Now, try and figure that out. But that's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that he sovereignly decreed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read Acts chapter 2. Read Acts chapter 4. And you'll see that everything associated with Jesus' death was predestined. That's the word it uses, predestined by God. That means the handing over of Christ to the Jews. That, that means the trial by the Jews and by the Romans. That means the crucifixion. All of those acts committed by free human agents, all of them were predetermined by God. But those acts were also committed by people who have a freedom of will. You, you can't flatten this out. You, you, can't, you can't on one hand say that you're a Christian, you don't believe God's sovereign, but equally you can't believe that we're machines. We're not. We have a freedom and liberty of will. The two go together. It's an incredible, it's an incredible revelation. It's a tough one to get, but I think this passage preaches it really, really well. Okay? So one thing we can say for sure is that the God of the open theists isn't the God of the Bible. God knows the future. God has declared the end from the beginning. He doesn't need to learn anything. He doesn't need to look down the corridors of time and figure out what's going to happen because he decreed it. His knowledge is perfect, otherwise he wouldn't be God, amen? Now today we're looking together uh, in the next sort of 20 minutes, half an hour. We're going to be looking at one of the most incredible of all Bible prophecies. This is unbelievable. And I hope you've got your thinking heads with you today because we're going to get deep into this prophecy. It's known as Daniel's 70 weeks. And this prophecy deals specifically with the nation of Israel, with the city of Jerusalem, 
and with the timings and the order of really important historical events concerning the coming of the Messiah and the end of time in this world. I want for us to see the following as we begin today's message. Three things I want for us firstly to see that prophecy in the Bible is there for you to understand. It's there for you to understand. It's not unreachable. Bible prophecy is not there for us to just kind of ignore and go, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it, the book of Revelation? Uh, Book of Daniel, shelve that for the nutcases on YouTube. Um, I'll just go straight back to the Old Testament, thank you very much. No, the, the prophetic books are there for us as a church to understand. Secondly, if we understand Bible prophecy, we will also understand our times. If we understand Bible prophecy, it will speak to us about the times that we live in. And that's helpful because number three, if we understand the times that we're living in, we will know how we ought to be praying. And I'll show you this right now. Because we're told by Daniel, right at the start of this chapter, we're told all this happens in the first year of Darius the Mede. So this is roughly 10 years after what we read in chapter 8. This is 10 years after his vision of the two beasts in Daniel chapter 8. We see in the language also that Darius was made king over the Chaldeans. And maybe this is an allusion to the fact that there was a higher king in the Persian Empire at the moment, which is what historians think. They believe that Cyrus was the king over all of the Persian Empire and that he put Darius the Mede in to rule over Babylonia for a few years. Now, Daniel, the first half of this whole chapter is about a prayer that Daniel prays. He prays it on behalf of his people. And it's a prayer that receives an immediate answer from heaven. And that's why we've got to take a look at it. We've got to take a look at it just for a moment. We're going to give some time to look at this prayer. Why did Daniel pray? What was the motivation behind his prayer? How did he pray? And what happened when he did pray? These are really important questions to ask today. But firstly, before we dive in, I want for us to take notice of a very small word. Right at the beginning of verse 3. If you have a New International Version, an NASB or a New Living Translation, that word will be so it will read so if you've got an ESV it will read then Uh, if you've got a new King James it will read and reason why there's so many different words is because this is taken from the Hebrew language and there's a letter in Hebrew called Vav and that little letter Vav can mean like a billion different things and so that's why you've got lots of different translations but I think in this case the word so is the best translation It's the best translation because the word so conveys to us that what is about to be written following that word is directly connected to what's been written before. It's a causal word. It's almost like a therefore, okay? So whatever Daniel's about to pray after verse 3 is directly connected to what's been written already in verse 2. So what is it that was the cause of Daniel's prayer? It was what Daniel understood of Jeremiah's prophecy. You you read that in verse 2? It talks about Jeremiah's prophecy. Well, where's that found? It's found in 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21. And it says this, 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 70 years. So Daniel had been poring over the scriptures. He'd been reading and studying the scriptures for prophetic insight about the times that he was living in. Excuse me, the times he was living in. He wanted to know what God's word was for his people, for his times. He wanted to understand what God was saying about the people Israel in Babylon. He was looking for a very specific word about the end of their exile. Daniel understood his times. And he found in Jeremiah this prophecy indicating that the time of the exile would be 70 years. Now before we get our prophecies mixed up, because it can get very confusing, right? In this chapter, there's actually two separate prophecies, and both concern 70s. Okay, so there's a prophecy about 70s at the start of the chapter, 70 years of enslavement. And there's a prophecy at the end of the chapter about 70 weeks that are decreed for Israel. Don't get them confused. They're they're two separate prophecies, okay? The first is dealing with Israel's captivity, which is about to be brought to an end. And the end prophecy is about things that are to come, okay? So first is 70 years of captivity that's about to come to an end. This letter, uh, rather this, uh, this book, this chapter in Daniel was written in about 538 BC. Okay, so roughly 70 years now that the Jews have been in captivity. It's about to end. So the first one is 70 years, about to end. The second one at the end of this chapter is 70 weeks about things which are to come. Now we know the Israelites had gone into captivity because of sin, hadn't they? They'd continually disobeyed God's word. They trampled it underfoot. Equally, the 70 years of captivity, even that wasn't random. Even that had a reason behind it. You notice what Jeremiah said. He said it was connected to the land. The Israelites were taken away for 70 years so that the land could have its Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, God decreed when his people moved into the promised land. You remember? He he decreed that the land should be given a Sabbath. So every seventh year, they were supposed to not farm that land and let that land take a year's rest. Now, they hadn't been doing that. They hadn't been giving the land its Sabbath. And so when God took them out of the land for 70 years so that the land could have its Sabbath, that means that there were 70 years that the land had not had a Sabbath. That means there were 490 years when God's people had not given their land a Sabbath rest. Once again, Brothers and sisters, we're seeing how seriously God takes this concept of Sabbath. I remember when Sam preached the other week, he touched on this. God takes this concept of rest so, so seriously. The Israelites didn't give 
the land a Sabbath rest. And so God gave the land a Sabbath by removing the Israelites out of it. I wonder, why is it that we think that we can live life without Sabbath? Why do we rebel against Sabbath so strongly? Even as Christians, but especially in our culture. Why is it we think we can just go on like a Duracell bunny? I know I do. My flesh hates to rest. Why? Because I wrestle with sin. I'm going to say this quickly and then we'll move on. If, if you don't give yourself rest, eventually you'll be made to rest. If you don't give yourself a Sabbath, eventually you'll be made to take a Sabbath through sickness, burnout, or something else. Let me say this, church. Nothing that God made is supposed to go without Sabbath rest. Nothing. There's no shame in obeying that rule of life for ourselves in taking rest. There's no shame in it. In our culture, we seem to applaud and glory in people who never rest. It's almost like a badge of honor, isn't it? That we don't sleep, we don't rest, we're always working. Let me tell you, that's a sin. It's not something we should be glorying in. Rest is something that God modeled for us in creation. So there's no shame in obeying it. Brothers and sisters, let's take rest seriously. Let's take Sabbath seriously for our lives. I I know I feel challenged by that. Now before we move on, there's something else we have to just take a moment to, to recognize about Daniel. Watch this. When Daniel wanted to know what God's word over him and his people was, where did he go? What did he do? He went to the scriptures. He went to the Old Testament. He went to the Tanakh. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be more ready to do that. When we want to know what God's word is for us, for the church and for this nation, that we would go to the Bible. Daniel didn't just write, you know guys, I just really feel like God's saying I just really sense like God might be saying this. He didn't say that. He went to the scriptures and he came away knowing what God was saying. Now I don't doubt that Daniel was praying, Lord speak to me. I don't doubt that at all. But it was in the scriptures that he heard the voice of God. So much time, money and energy in the church today is spent on trying to learn to hear God's voice and precious little time spent on actually studying God's word. Also, I want you to see how Daniel took Bible prophecy literally. He took it literally. He didn't take the 70 years prophecy to be symbolic. That's interesting. He took it to mean 70 literal calendar years. So what? Well, there are some people that want to make all Bible prophecy to be figurative. Okay? But we see here that some Bible prophecy is to be taken literally. We're actually supposed to be able to understand what's meant by 70 years. So, 
I think this is really important. When we read Bible prophecy, we've, we've got to try and understand that some of it is figurative. Okay, so the beast that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, they weren't actual physical beasts that were going to come. But then there's other prophecies where 70 years means 70 years. So we really need to understand that nuance when we read Bible prophecy. So Daniel understood this prophecy of 70 years. What did he do then? He prayed. He prayed about it. And this is the wonderful relationship I was talking to you about between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Watch this. So God reveals to Daniel through the Bible that the time of the Israelite exile is coming to an end. But Daniel doesn't go, listen, God's sovereign. I can sit back and wait and watch it happen from my armchair. He prays. Watch, because God reveals to us his will and his purposes so that we might pray. I think God's done this throughout history. Whenever we look at revivals, the Welsh revivals are a classic. In 1904, long before there were thousands being baptized in Welsh rivers, Evan Roberts, the miner, began to pray. Why? Because God revealed to his heart the desperation of the nation of Wales at the time, the need for souls to come to Christ. Evan Roberts began to pray. He began to wait outside the the mine every day and preach the gospel to people, and people would be saved. God is sovereign, but he doesn't just ordain the ends, he ordains the means. He ordains that it should be us, the church, that prays his will to come about, because we understand the times we live in. We begin to pray into it. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. What I love about Daniel's prayer is that he constantly uses the pronoun we, doesn't he? He he repents and he doesn't say, Lord, I'm sorry for what all those terrible Israelites have done in generations before me. He prays, Lord, we have sinned against you. He includes himself. There's a deep remorse and repentance for the sins of Israel. Daniel wasn't even around to reject the word of the prophets. He was too young. He wasn't born. But he repents nonetheless. Now I I just really feel challenged by that. Is that how I pray for the church? Or do I pray, Lord, I just repent on behalf of that lot over there who've just gotten their theology all wrong and they're making such a mess of things. Well, that's not how Daniel prayed. I feel challenged by that. When I pray for the church, am I going to say we? Are you going to say, we, Lord? Lord, we are sorry that we haven't walked in your way fully. Even though you know that actually it's others who've perhaps sinned in that respect. But we're part of a body, aren't we? We're part of a people. So I'm challenged to pray more like that in my prayers, just like Daniel did. Moreover, Daniel, when he prays, he, he lays all of this at the feet of of a God to whom belongs mercy and forgiveness. Read that in Daniel 9.9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Now, brothers and sisters, that verse there, verse 9, to God who belongs mercy and forgiveness, that verse tells us why there's still hope even today. Even in this world right now where Russia is invading Ukraine, that verse tells us why we as a church can still be hopeful. 
It's because the God who does exist, who is enthroned over all the cosmos, is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And that's why there's hope even for the most inveterate of sinners, those who are stuck and buried in decades of addiction and vice. It tells us that if they will turn to God today and repent, they will still find him full of mercy and forgiveness. John 3.16, of course, tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. You know, throughout the ages, from Genesis right through until Revelation, God's been speaking to his people about grace. He's been speaking to them about love. He's been speaking to his people that he will send a Savior into the world. Genesis 3.15, even as early as that, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, there are actually about 300, more than 300, biblical prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And this passage in Daniel is one of them. It's special because it talks to us not about what Jesus will do, about where he will come from, but about the timing of Messiah's coming. This prophecy is speaking to the Jews about the timing of their Messiah's arrival into the world. So the angel Gabriel visits. It's the second time Daniel's met the angel Gabriel, and he tells Daniel that a command was issued for him to visit Daniel at the very start of his prayer not at the end but at the start isn't that amazing Daniel hadn't even begun to pray but in heaven there had already been an issue of a decree to go and visit him take encouragement because sometimes our prayers are answered the answer is coming from heaven before we've even said amen the answer's on its way But even though the angel Gabriel got the decree before Daniel started speaking, he didn't arrive until the time of the evening offering, which is about four in the afternoon. So it took time for Daniel to get the answer from heaven, but the decree had already been issued. Be encouraged in your prayer life. The answer might already be on its way. Isn't that wonderful? He tells Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for his people, for his holy city. So before we dive further in, let's do a bit of exegesis. If this prophecy is concerning Daniel's Daniel's people, sorry, and Daniel's city, the holy city, who is it concerning? The Jews, Israel, and Jerusalem. So whatever this prophecy is about, it can't be about New York It can't be about us here in the UK. It's concerning the Jews. It's concerning Israel. It's concerning Jerusalem. And biblical scholars are pretty much unanimous in understanding that the 70 weeks aren't actual weeks, but they're 70 groups of seven years. 70 groups of seven years. So seven years times 70. The Hebrew for 70 weeks is literally 77s, 77s, so that's what we're talking about, stick with me, 
Maths was never my sub favorite subject either, so uh, we'll get there together, all right? But 70 lots of seven years equals, somebody's good at maths, Sue knows, 70 lots of seven is 490. So we're talking about 490 years, a period of 490 years that have been decreed for the Jews and for Jerusalem. Now this period of 490 years is actually subdivided into four. So Gabriel tells us in verse 24 that six things are going to happen in this 490-year period. Firstly, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, to anoint the most holy place. Now, all of those six things are massive, aren't they? They're huge, huge statements. And all of them have to be completed within this 490-year period. So looking at this list of things, this list of six things, with Christian eyes, what do we see? We see Jesus, don't we? To make an end of iniquity, Jesus. To make atonement for sin, Jesus. We see it. This is the gospel. This is Christ coming into the world. He makes atonement for iniquity. He brings in everlasting righteousness. That's what we see, isn't it? And Gabriel tells Daniel that the prophetic clock of that 490-year period, or we'll see that it's broken into four in a moment, but the clock begins ticking on that timescale from the issuing of a decree. That's when the prophetic clock begins to tick. This decree, we're told, is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's when the timing begins. And brothers and sisters, if we understand when this prophetic clock begins to tick, it's going to tell us the precise time when the Jewish Messiah was to come. Okay? Literally, it's like a prophetic stopwatch. But if we get the start time wrong, we'll end up with the wrong date. So we need to understand, brothers and sisters, when is this stopwatch supposed to start? Which decree was the angel Gabriel talking about concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem? Because there's more than one. We've got in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, a decree from Cyrus, the Persian king, to rebuild the temple. Now this decree most believe was issued in 536 BC, so just a few years after this chapter was written. The second decree that we've got in Scripture is in Ezra chapter 7. Now this is a different king. This is Artaxerxes. And this is concerning temple worship, the priests, and the offerings in the temple. And that was issued in 458 BC, there or thereabouts. Then there is a third decree which we find in Nehemiah, chapter 2. And this is from the same king. It's from Artaxerxes, and it comes in 444 BC. And this decree is specifically about the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the city, okay? Because the temple has already been built, but the city is still in ruins, and the roads are in ruins. We find out... Nehemiah trekked around it, didn't he, with his donkey, and there were parts of it he couldn't even get through because it was all fallen down. Now, which of those three decrees fits best? Well, the first two, Cyrus's and Artaxerxes, they deal only really with the temple and with temple ministry. 
So it seems to be the third one in Nehemiah chapter 2 that fits the best. And seeing as verse 25 in Daniel 9 tells us specifically that the streets and the walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, even in troublesome times, that does seem to fit Nehemiah well, doesn't it? So let's take then that that third decree in Nehemiah chapter 2 is the one that Gabriel's talking about. From 444 BC, that's when the stopwatch begins. The word says from Gabriel that from that date, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's seven lots of seven years and 62 lots of seven years. Equaling, so that's 69 weeks in all, not including the 70th week, note that. Okay. Altogether, that will be 483 years. Okay, 69 weeks equals 483 years. Are you still with me? (laughs) This is brilliant. So listen, if we count forward, stay with me, because I hate maths too. But if you count forward 483 years from 444 BC, so the prophetic clock ticks for 483 years all the way through, we actually arrive at the date of 38 AD. 38 AD, why is that? If you've got your calculator out, you'll be thinking, no, it's not, Graham, it's 39 AD. But you're forgetting, there's no zero AD. It went 1 BC, 1 AD. Okay, so you take that year off. It's 38 AD. Now, it's in the ballpark of where Jesus lived, but we know... Jesus was actually crucified in around either 30 AD or 33 AD. There's debate over that. But nobody believes Jesus was still around in 38 AD. So how could it be 38? We as Christians thinking, what happened then? It's confusing. Now, there was a scholar, an Irishman by the name of Robert Anderson. He actually went on to serve in the Metropolitan Police in London In the 1800s, he was involved with the Jack the Ripper case, actually. Very interesting guy. He was also a biblical scholar. And he took this passage and began to research into it to try and figure out what was going on. When was this prophetic clock supposed to end and tell us when the Messiah was to come? And he understood that back in the times of Daniel, they didn't actually have a 365-day year. They actually had a 360-day year. They had 12 months of 30 days. Now, when he calculated, recalculated this prophecy with that new understanding of years being 360 days and not 365, get ready for this number. He calculated that Daniel's 69 weeks from the point of the decree to the coming of the Messiah was exactly... 173,880 days. So, if we count forwards, 1,700, sorry, 173,880 days from 444 BC, we land on a very specific date. Now, what's interesting is we also know the date of Artaxerxes' decree. We know that it was right at the beginning of the month of Nisan in 444 BC. We know it was right then because we know that Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem still in the month of Nisan, but the decree was made in the month of Nisan. 
Okay? So we know it was in the month of Nisan. Now, if we count forward all those days from 444 BC, we land on the date of March 30th, 33 AD. I'll tell you why that's significant. That date is in the month of Nisan, in the Jewish calendar, and it ties in with a very special event, which is documented in the New Testament. Most scholars believe that this date, there or thereabouts, is the time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the whole of the city came out. They laid down palm branches and they said, Hosanna in the highest. What were they doing? They were welcoming their king, their Messiah was revealed before their eyes. Now, do you think Jesus knew what he was doing? I think so. It was him that said, get me a colt to ride on. We know the prophecy about the Messiah coming, riding on a foal of a donkey. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was riding into Jerusalem. He was riding into Jerusalem on exactly the day when Daniel said it would happen and he would be revealed as the Messiah of the Jews. This is incredible. What's cooler is that most people in the nation at the time understood they were living at the end of the 69th week of Daniel. Everyone in Jerusalem at that time was expecting Messiah. If you've ever watched um, Monty Python, it makes a big play on that, doesn't it? That everybody's expecting the Messiah. Well, it was true. They were. They were ready. They understood. They were living at the end of the 69th week and the Messiah was going to come any day. And even today, amongst Jews, this is a very powerful witness pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah of the Jews and of the whole world. Sadly, though many Jews have believed on Christ and many as a result of this actual prophecy many have rejected him also and in fact in rabbinical Judaism today they forbid anyone from trying to work out the timings of Daniel chapter 9 in the Talmud it says blasted be the bones of anyone who tries to work out the timings of Daniel's 70 weeks which means may you not be resurrected at the end of time very severe. The Talmud was written after the time of Jesus. So Gabriel says that after March 30th, 33 AD, after the end of the 69th week of Daniel's 70 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That means in Hebrew, he shall die. He shall be killed. But not for himself, the text says. Doesn't that sound exactly like Isaiah 53 to you? Which says in verse 8, by oppression, and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, not for himself, but for others. We're told he will be cut off. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? After he rode in on the donkey, less than a week later, he was crucified, not for himself, but for the transgressions of the world. Then we're told, this is after the 69th week, and before the 70th week. So we've got things happening, haven't we? In between the 69th week and the 70th week. We've got events happening. 
We're told that the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the temple. So after the temple, the walls and the roads are rebuilt, and Messiah comes, they'll be destroyed again. That's what we're told by Daniel all the way back in 538 BC, and that's exactly what happened. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem, put it under siege, and reduced it to rubble. Tore the thing apart. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see some of the rubble from the Temple Mount thrown down into the valley below. So again, we've got accurate Bible prophecy concerning the destruction of the Temple. And also, what does this tell us? It tells us that the people of the prince to come are the ones who did this. Now, this is really complicated but incredible. Who are the people of the prince to come? Who are they who destroyed the temple in AD 70? Well, it's the Romans, wasn't it? It was the Romans. Now, think back with me to Daniel chapter 7 when we covered this. There was a little horn, wasn't there, that rose up out of one of the beasts, the beast that had ten horns on it. Do you remember what that beast represented? Rome. The fourth beast of Daniel 7 is Rome. That's where this little horn that speaks blasphemous things against the Most High comes, okay? So the prince who is to come in verse 26 is the same individual as the little horn of Daniel 7, the Antichrist of the end times. This is crazy. All these things happen after the 69th week and before the 70th. There's lots more I could say on that. But we do read that there'll be a final week, and we haven't got time to cover that today, but there'll be a final week, a 70th week, in which this prince that is to come, or the Antichrist, makes a covenant with many, then breaks it, destroys again, the temple. What does that mean? It means there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at some future point in time. Even now, there are groups lobbying to start work on that. That's incredible. All of this that Daniel has prophesied up until week 69 has been absolutely accurate. The events after week 69 have been spot on absolutely accurate. Why would we not trust that the 70th week will also be accurate. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, why are we learning about this? Why on earth are we learning all of these numbers and maths and these predictions and prophecies? Isn't this a bit strange for a Sunday? Well, yes, but also, understanding God's word for us today in the prophetic scriptures is going to help us to understand the time that we live in. If you see anything from today, you understand that we are living in times between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. And the Bible speaks about us living in the last days. How many of you understand you live in the last days? You're living in the very, very, very last days of this time. And understanding this, we can see what's about to happen in the earth. Why do we need to understand it? So that we can know how to pray. So that we as a church would understand what we're seeing around us is simply the birth pangs. It's simply the shakings that are going to happen before the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Before we see, in all likelihood, something like a one world government, 
something like a little horn rising up, a leader, a ruler, who at first seems every inch an incredible ruler, a generous and kind and intelligent ruler, who midway through his rule turns against God's people and begins to act as the Bible tells us he will, blaspheming the Most High. We're learning this so we would, might know how to pray, Lord Jesus, come. So that we could be reassured, brothers and sisters, in our faith that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Isn't that incredible? The Bible prophesies the coming of Christ to the day. Finally, that we know that God is God. God is God. He's sovereign. He rules over all the affairs of this world. He raises up empires and he casts them down again. And also that we know that God is good. God is good. He's working all things together to those who love him and accord according to his purpose. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We'll pray. But I want for you to be encouraged today that you're on the earth right now because God decreed that you would be. We're living through these times, these difficult things that we're seeing going on around us. We're living in this moment because God has a purpose for us in this moment. None of us is here by accident. We're all children of a God who decreed the time of Christ to the day. We're all children of a sovereign, merciful, loving God. And he put you here for a purpose. Sometimes it can feel, can't it, just a bit overwhelming with what we've seen going on in the world this week. It feels scary. Sometimes we miss the easier days. But it encourages me when I read passages like this and I, I realize that God doesn't do anything by accident. He didn't make a mistake with you either. You're here with a wonderful calling and purpose on your life to glorify God in these days. Let's stand.